Amen. You may be seated. Back to God's Word. Back to John chapter 4. This morning we are looking at verses 27 through 42. You can find that on page 889 in the Pew Bible. John 4, starting in verse 27. This is our third and final look at Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. We have seen Jesus' great love for her and kindness toward this woman. He has come for her to rescue her. He has come for her to save her from her sins. So God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, has come to this out-of-the-way well, in this remote place, outside an insignificant town, to rescue and redeem this woman, to give her life, uh, to make her his daughter. He has gone to great lengths to do her so good, and the ultimate good that can be done to any soul is to deal with that soul's sins. And that's why Jesus has come. And that's what Jesus has done. It's, it's beautiful. And it's a beautiful picture and pattern. This is our Lord and Savior, the Son, the one that we say that we love and follow. And the thing that God is up to with us and in us is he is conforming us into the image of his Son. He is making us more and more like Christ. The Christ that we see displayed here in John chapter 4. Yes, Christ is first and foremost our Savior. The first question is not, what would Jesus do? But what has Jesus done? But, rightly understood, that question, uh, what would Jesus do, is not a bad question. He's the perfect person. He is the only man who has ever lived without sin. He is the image of the invisible God. He reflects and reveals to us uh, what the God of all perfections is like. Of course, we should want to model our lives after him. Of course, we should want uh, to look to him and look like him. Yes, he is our substitute and savior, but then he is also our model and example. All of that entirely dependent upon grace. And so I have argued that you could summarize this story under three headings. Water, worship, witness. In verse 10, Jesus has graciously offered this sinful woman living water. In verse 14, he has explained that this water that he gives, spiritual water, which is the Holy Spirit who, who grants the new birth, this spiritual water will well up into eternal life. And listen, this is what Jesus is all about. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see how kind and good he is? You see what he is offering to us? Abundant, eternal Life. That's what the metaphor of the water represents. And Jesus boldly and unapologetically claims that this life, the satisfaction, pleasure, peace, identity, rest, all the things that we're looking for, he says all of that is only found in me. And if that is true, and if he has come and done that for us entirely apart from us and anything that we've done, if he has given us such a gift and it's entirely grace from beginning to end, if we get life when we have chosen and gladly pursued death, then the response, worship. It's worship. If you know God, this God, if you have really experienced his amazing, saving grace, oh, then you'll love him. Worship, we saw last week, is the whole-souled, glad response to God and his grace. Oh, wow, he is really, really good. Oh, wow, I, I enjoy him. I delight in him. I am thankful for him. And I want my entire life 
my words, my attitudes, my feelings, my actions to reflect that reality. That's worship. It is a heart occupied with God, expressing itself in love and thankfulness. And you know what that does? It makes you glad. Right? I told you two weeks ago how I'm just tired of grumpiness. I'm a grumpy person, and I'm tired of being grumpy. And I'm tired of Christians being like, oh, it's okay to be grumpy. No, grace makes us glad. I want to be glad, not grumpy. And if I find Christ and the gospel rightly understood by his grace, I will be glad in him. Do you have an experience, a taste of that true worship in spirit and truth? And so now, for our last look at this story, we turn to what will follow true worship. Water, life, worship, response to the life, witness. That's this week. But the more I thought about it this week, the more I was convinced that the way I laid this out and separated this out isn't entirely Accurate. We tend to draw a hard and fast distinction between worship and witness. Maybe that's not very helpful. What I want to argue today is that witness is worship. Witness is a form of worship. Witness is an expression of worship. We are all of us weak witnesses. Maybe like not Diana or Peter or Marina. There's a few of us, by the grace of God, that are good at this. But most of us are terrible at this. Uh, The American evangelical church has been plagued for a long time by poor witness, and we are no exception. Maybe, looking at it from a bit of a different perspective this morning, by the grace of God, could be helpful. I want us to see the direct connection between these two things. I want us to see that a witness problem must be the result of a worship problem. I want us to see that worship will result in witness because witness is worship. And so just like I argued last week that you are always worshiping, always worshiping something, whatever it is that you most love and live for, that you are pursuing, that your life is oriented around and toward, well, that's what you worship. But just as you are always worshiping, you are also always witnessing. You are always worshiping something, and you are always witnessing to or about something, and the two are going to be directly connected. And so we must turn again to Scripture. We must turn again to the living and active revelation of the good and glorious God and ask Him to continue to open our eyes to His glory, to to capture us with His beauty, then to lead us to respond to Him in whole-souled worship and then turn and seek others to join us. Because that's what witness is. And we worship God as we witness to His grace and glory. You, like me, are witness weak, but basic principle, we speak about what we love. Right? We, we witness to what we worship. So we all need some help. I think this word maybe can help. Four points this morning to structure our time. Point number one, worship always results in witness. I want us to see how she responds to her encounter with Jesus. Then point number two, we will see from Jesus' discussion that witness is God's will and it's our work. That's what we're going to look at second. But let's understand witness rightly. Point number three, our work of witness is life-giving to others. We get that, but this is important too. It's also life-giving to ourselves, and I think we missed this part. And all of this is only because point number four, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. So John chapter 4, starting
Starting in verse 27, reading through verse 42, Jesus and the woman have been talking about the water. They've been talking about worship. And Jesus has just graciously revealed to her, not his disciples, not Nicodemus, not the Jews, but to this woman, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is life. Let's pick it up in verse 27. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony or witness. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If you would bow with me, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given to us the words of life. We thank you that you reveal and sanctify and shape and comfort and encourage and change. You save through your word. So, Father, help us now to give our full attention to these words. Help us to hunger and crave, not my words, Father, but your words. Father, help us to expectantly um, ask and depend upon your spirit to take these words and to to drive them deep into our hearts and to show us Jesus Christ and and to show us what a wonderful, worshipful life in response to him will look like. And, Father, make us your witnesses. Um, Motivate us. And move us to see the great privilege and the great joy that it is to speak of the one who has given us life. We all desperately need help in that area. Um, So, Father, we ask for your help. Help the preaching of the word. Help the hearing of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one is that worship always results in witness. The disciples return. They interrupt the conversation. We don't know if or how much they overheard, but we do know that they're astonished. That Jesus, a Jewish man, is talking to this Samaritan woman. Remember, she herself was astonished by this back in verse 9. For men did not talk with women, Jews did not talk with Samaritans, but Jesus did. And Jesus does. And his disciples are astonished. Barriers are being shattered. But they're just too stunned to do anything. And so the story immediately uh, turns back to the woman. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? First, there's a seemingly insignificant detail in there, right? The the water jar. It's hard to know exactly how much to make 
of the water jar left behind. So I don't want to be too dogmatic here, but generally you read books on writing, good writing, they'll tell you if you include a detail, one of the books says like, look, if you leave a knife on the table, somebody better use that knife, right? If you include a detail or an object, do something with it, right? Include it for a reason. So what's the significance of this water jar? There's a number of possibilities. Some argue that it's an expression of worship, Remember, Jesus is weary. He's asked her for a drink. He's in the desert. So she lovingly leaves behind her water jar to care for him so that he can drink from it and quench his thirst. Possible. Some argue that there is more symbolic significance in light of the context of this story. We've seen how important water is as a theme in John's gospel. We've seen the same Greek word back in chapter 2. Remember, Jesus transforms the water in these jars, it's the same word, and he, translate, he transforms that into wine. There we saw that the water likely represented the emptiness of the Jewish ceremonies. Jesus transforms them. He turns water to wine. Maybe, in a similar way, in her discovery of the living water, in her discovering of the eternal life in Christ, she immediately abandons the old water jar. Maybe it's symbolic of her abandonment of the old ways, the old ceremonial forms of worship for the new, for the worship in spirit and truth that Jesus has just taught. Again, also possible. I think, though, that the simplest explanation is the most likely explanation. She's excited. She's ecstatic. She has met the Messiah. She has found living water. She has found life, the satisfaction that she has been looking for her whole life. And so in her excitement, she forgets entirely the very thing that she came for. Her original purpose in coming was to get physical water. Physical water is important. It is necessary for life. But she has discovered that which is far more significant eternally more significant. She has discovered spiritual water necessary to spiritual life. And so she naturally just forgets and leaves behind that which is less important uh, for that which is more important. The very thing she thought was life is nothing compared to the true life that she has found. And so she lays it aside and she goes. And this is important for us to see. She meets Jesus. She comes to Jesus and what is the very first thing that she does? What does she immediately do in response to her encounter with Jesus? She goes and invites others to come to Jesus. This is the first step of her new life. She is leaving behind her worship of other things, her sinful life to follow Jesus. Maybe even the jar symbolizes that. Also in the Greek, by the way, in the text, it literally says she went and said to the men, can mean people. It can mean both. It could mean men. We've just been talking about her six men back in verse 18. But think about it. They're not in New York City. They're in this tiny, small town. And it's unlikely that all six of these men have died. And people back then didn't move from China to New York, right? You generally stayed in the town you were born. In all likelihood, these men were maybe there. Maybe the men that we were formerly the object of her worship are now the object of her witness as she takes the step of leaving her sinful life behind to pursue the Lord. The first thing that she does is she goes and invites other sinners to join her. That's witness. Come, see. And that's evangelism. Worship has resulted in witness or worship is expressing itself as witness. 
I've shared with you before some of C.S. Lewis's musings on praise from his commentary on the Psalms. Uh, we just talked about worship. He's talking about praise. Again, same thing, worship, praise. Listen to what he says. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed, get this, catch this, this is it. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Praise of weather, not today. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, uh, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised the least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. You see, you're always worshiping or praising something. Enjoyment naturally overflows into praise. Wow, that is good. Consider again the illustration that I used last week of how I cannot help but, but moan and, and express my pleasure vocally over a good meal. You, you worship, you express your enjoyment of what you love. But Lewis keeps writing. Notice the shift that he makes from worship to witness. He keeps going. He says, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they love. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable God, what we delight to do. Indeed, what we can't help but doing about everything that we value. Like, that, that's a lot, that's long, uh, it's, but it's, it's really profound. Praise, he says, is inner health made audible. It's the expression. It's the natural outpouring of love and perfection. We have recognized value and beauty, and we cannot help but respond to that value and beauty. Wow, that's really good. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. But true worship doesn't stop there. If it's true worship, it keeps going. We love it so much that we want others to recognize and enjoy that same goodness. Worship, wow, that was good. To witness, wow, that was good. Hey, did you see that? Hey, look at this. Have you seen this great and good thing? Right? Peter did this for many of us with Popeye's chicken sandwiches a while ago, right? He discovered something wonderful and delicious that he loved. He shared it with us. He encouraged us. He witnessed to us. And then we all tasted and saw that it was good. And so then we, we joined him in the worship and the witness, right? I do the same thing with chip cookies. Uh, this week was the best cookie in the world. Don't ever talk to Susan about cookies. Uh, strawberry shortcake cookie. It's the best. It's wonderful. Um, go and get it and eat it. Uh, kind of embarrassingly, yesterday, I went on a long run so that I could justify eating the cookie, and in the middle of the run, I stopped to buy the cookies and ate one, and then had a whole box of cookies and was running back down Queens Boulevard and then ran into Anna Marie and Ernie, and it was embarrassing. Like, I'm running down the road carrying this big box of cookies. But then I witnessed to them about the goodness of it and said, hey, this is the best cookie. It's a few blocks over there. Go and get it. Did you get the cookie? Did you get it? 
bad illustration. So I, 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 I failed. Uh, but the general principle applies, right? We love these things, and then the praise of those things is consummated and completed in encouraging others to taste and see, right? Part of my worship is expressed in recognizing the supreme value, and then I'm compelled to share it with you, right? I'm witnessing to the, to the greatness of a good that I have discovered. That's witness, And this is what we often get so wrong. We so often present witness as this terrible drudgery. Yeah, you know, we're supposed to do it. Yeah, we know it's awkward and terrible, but, you know, suck it up and and do it. No wonder we are evangelistic failures. But look at this lady. It's so simple. It's so beautiful. She meets Jesus. She is consumed with Jesus. She invites others to come and meet Jesus. And that's all evangelism is. Don't complicate it. Don't build it up into a thing that it is not. And it's evident in verse 29 that she's still even figuring things out. We all tend to think, you've probably used this excuse, uh, "Eh, I don't know enough yet. What if they ask me this question that I can't answer? I'm not qualified yet to evangelize. She did not allow herself to be hindered by what she did not know. She didn't know a lot. She simply, though, witnessed to what she did know she had met Jesus Christ. Have you met Jesus Christ? Like really met him? Because you may be missing something. We've so watered things down and tried to make Christianity light as mere and simple and inoffensive as possible, and we've maybe somewhat missed the beautiful and supernatural thing that it is. This is the claim that we are making. We have met God. We have met God himself. We are making the claim that God himself has come for us, has come to us in Jesus Christ to live for us and to die for us. He has given us new life. He has made us new. We deserved death and hell. God himself has come to give us life in heaven. What? If that's true, if that's really what we claim to believe, how can we not worship? Right? How can we not rejoice and delight? How can we go on being so miserable and grumpy when this most wonderful and delightful of things is true. We need to be just a little bit overwhelmed and glad about how good this thing is that has happened. And how can we then not talk about it in just a little bit? Hey, come and see. Have you ever said that to anyone? Worship results in witness. Because point number two, witness is God's will and it is our work. Yes, we need to transform our understanding of witness and see it as worship, part of the natural response and overflow of the love that we have for the God who so wonderfully first loved us. But we also need to see that it is the will of God and it is our work. The Samaritans are on the way to come and see the Jesus that she has witnessed to. But first, the scene shifts back to Jesus and the disciples. Verse 31, they were urging him to eat. He had sat down at the well because he was weary while they went into town to get some food. Now they're back with the food. He's got to be hungry. He has to eat. Look at his response. And note how reminiscent this is of the conversation with the Samaritan woman before. But now instead of water, we're talking about food. Verse 32. Let's unpack this metaphor. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
Verse 33, like the woman in verse 11, the disciples are confused. What is he talking about? They're not tracking with Jesus. They're thinking only in terms of physical food. Has somebody else brought Jesus something to eat here? Verse 34, Jesus is so graciously patient with them. He is so graciously patient with us. And here's why we're called to be patient with one another, because God is infinitely patient with us, um, which is good, because we are sinful and slow. I am sinful and slow. But Jesus said to them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's another masterful metaphor, food. Think about it. Unpack the meaning. Food is that which satisfies and sustains. We eat to live. Food is our fuel. Right? Anthony has gotten me into to long distance running. He witnessed to me about the goodness of it for a while. I rejected it, but then I tasted and saw, and I've gotten really into it. Um, but initially, I'd hit a certain distance, and I would, and Baining too. Sorry, I've got to give credit to where credit's due. Baining gets an important nod here. But I would run a long distance, and I started just hitting a wall. And I was done, and I couldn't go any further, and I just couldn't imagine how people could go for 26 miles. It made no sense to me. But then I started reading, and it was pretty obvious. You can go generally like 60 to 90 minutes with no food, no fuel running. So it's wonderful. It's simple. You run with snacks, right? I started, I bought a fanny pack, and I started running <laughs> with energy gels and cliff bars into this fancy little belt, and then a number of miles in, you take a hit, and it's magic, right? Calories, energy, fuel. It satisfies, it sustains, and you can keep going. That's what food does. But look at what Jesus says is his food. What that which satisfies and sustains and fuels him. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, his food is to work the will of his Father. The will of God and the work of God was the food of the Son of God. It drove him. It satisfied him. It sustained him. It gave him energy. Jesus is saying, fulfilling my mission is more important than physical food. This is about priorities. Get your priorities straight. We so often get our priorities out of line and, and out of order. Our priorities are so frequently the priorities that the world is trying to impose upon us. Hey, care about this. Uh, this is the most important thing. Live for this thing. Focus on this thing. Hey, you are not a good person if you are not all about this thing. Maybe God's priorities are entirely different. The, the things that make front page news, the things that the world is telling us are the most important things, are of comparatively little concern to God. Right? There's all the headlines about the mess in Afghanistan and the disaster and it's awful and it's horrible and here's the mistakes that have made, here's what's happening and how do we get people out. I haven't seen a single headline about the church in Afghanistan. I haven't seen a single thing about God's people in Afghanistan and how they are going to suffer in response to this. Listen, that's what God cares about. His priorities are not the world's priorities. What's happening right here in this seemingly small and insignificant room is a far more concern to God than what is going on in Washington or London or Beijing or, or wherever. Ephesians 1.23 is a profound verse that says God is ruling and working all things for his church. His church, his people, is his focus. And that's pretty neat. Is our focus God's focus? Are our priorities his priorities? 
And so Jesus is helping the disciples to get their priorities in order by revealing to them his priorities, which is the will and work of God. Which is what? What does he mean when he says, my, it's God's, my, God's will, I'm going to do God's work? Well, flip ahead to John chapter 6 real quick. Just two chapters. There's a couple of spots where he uses similar language. Look at John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. What is the will and what is the work? John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Skip ahead to chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. John 12, verse 49. Jesus again. The Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. Go to John 17, five chapters ahead. Look at John 17, start in verse 4, and then we're going to go backwards. Look at John 17, verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified, praying to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Which was what? Trace it back to verse 3. We cannot get away from John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Back up to verse 2. You have given him, Jesus, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see what Jesus' work is? Jesus' work is all about eternal life. The will of God and the work of the Son of God is to save the people of God. This work, his work, is the core of the gospel. His work is to come and do for us what we failed to do for ourselves. To keep the law, to establish perfect righteousness, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our failure to keep the law, and to do all of it as our substitute in our place. That's the only way to eternal life. And so we repeat this again and again and again. The gospel is the good news that Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is the good news of his life and death and resurrection in our place for the forgiveness of sins. We must be good. We are not. Jesus came to be good for us. We are sinners. The wages of sin is death. Jesus came to die that death for us. That's God's will. And that's Christ's work. To accomplish eternal life on our behalf. And that is the thing that Jesus is all about. That is what Jesus came to do. Think about this. There's all kinds of confusions today. He did not address the political situation in Israel. He did not overturn the oppressive political policies. He did not solve the social inequalities. He did not deal with the economic disparity. He died so that we might live. We have no evidence from Scripture that Jesus paid any attention to the military or economic or political affairs of the kingdoms of the world. He taught his disciples. He brought the kingdom of God. He pursued and loved people like the Samaritan woman. And then he died and rose again. That's what Jesus is about. That's what drove him and sustained him. And if that was the will and work of Jesus, then that must mean that the will and work of the followers of Jesus 
will have something to do with that. And now we know that his work is unique. We know that we do not add anything to his work. Thou must save and thou alone. But, again, look back at the text. In verse 34, he's talking about how his food is to do God's will and work. But then he pivots in verse 35. Do you not say? Right? He's now taking the attention and focusing it and directing it towards and applying what he's just said to his disciples. And so he quotes some proverb about the normal gap in the physical world between sowing and reaping. Right? We're city folk, but... This is a simple idea. We get this, right? You do the labor of sowing and planting, but then it's months later, uh, months of waiting until reaping time, until the harvest, until you get to enjoy the fruit of your labors. But Jesus is saying in verse 35, that's not how it is in the spiritual realm. Not now. Now that I have come, he says, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Now, he means. What's he talking about? Well, some say, oh, he's in a field, and it's literally harvest time, so he must be looking around and just kind of uh, using the wheat as an illustration. Many think, though, and I think they're probably right, he may be referencing verse 30. He may be referencing, they, the Samaritans, went out of the town and were coming to him. So potentially, here comes the crowd, here comes people, sinners, in need of salvation, and Jesus says, look, the harvest. And he's not talking about food. He's talking about people. And he's not talking about feeding people. He's talking about saving people. He is talking about doing good to their souls, because that's what Jesus is about. Skip down to verse 38. He says it specifically now to his disciples. He says, I sent you to reap. And that is God's will and work for them. And thus, that's going to be God's will and work for us as well. Jesus was sent to do, we are sent to speak of what Jesus has done. Jesus came to save, we invite people to come and see the Jesus who saves. And in so doing, to be his witnesses. This is what Jesus' explicit command was to us before he left. He told us what to do. He told us what we are to be about. It's not complicated. It's not up for debate. He gave us our marching orders, our great commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that's the mission, period. That's the thing Jesus commands the church to do. And he even tells us how to do it. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them is the very next thing that follows. And this is why we took our vision statement from 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified. What are we going to be about? How are we going to accomplish the work that God has given us to do? We preach Christ crucified. That's how we're going to do it. We make disciples of Christ by preaching Christ, by teaching, which means by words, by witness. That's what a witness is. And we talked a long time ago about how big of a theme this is for John's gospel. Remember, you have John the author, but then there's another John, often called John the Baptist. Not in this gospel. Here, he's more John the witness. It sets out this central theme of the whole book, beginning all the way back in chapter 1, verse 7. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's the purpose of a witness. A witness is, is that which gives evidence or 
proof or establishes truth. A witness is a, a declaration or an affirmation of reason or evidence to the truth of something. So in other words, a witness is simply a word, a word about something else. And again, in this context, we know what that word is about. In chapter 123, that same John is asked, hey, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. See, John says, I'm not the Christ. I am a voice. He is a voice which comes 22 verses after Jesus has been identified as the word. And so a voice, we're doing this right now, right? A voice is a vehicle of a word. John is saying, I am a vehicle of the word. Voices make words known. John makes Jesus known. And that's what we are to do. We are witnesses, and a witness is a word about the word, Jesus Christ. And so it's pretty neat, if you think about it. The Gospel of John is all about how the eternal word entered into the world he created. That's the incarnation. The word took on flesh. But it's also then about how through our witness, that same eternal word also continues to enter into the world he created through our voice and through our witness. And so this text, along with others, like Matthew 28, make it clear that witness is God's will for us. And thus, it is the work he has left for us and entrusted us to do. And as we've been emphasizing, faith in Christ, truly following Christ, is about so much more than just claiming to intellectually believe some facts about Christ. Just like worship is so much more than singing some songs but it's our, our whole soul glad response to who he is and what he has done. Faith is our whole soul trust in him. And that will include our obedience to him. Faith in the word of God will result in obedience uh, to the work of God. And that work we see here is witness. This is what we're to be about. What if this is the very thing that we are here for? What if that's what God is doing with his church? This is what we are to be for and about because what we're seeing in this text is this is what Jesus was for and about eternal life. I think we have to understand this as a local church. I think there's a great temptation and a lot of churches get this wrong. It's easy to make them this mistake. But the world will always do everything better than the church. The world will always outcompete the church except for grace in the gospel. It can do everything else better than we can do it. But grace in the gospel, that's ours. We cannot outperform the world in anything else. So we should stop trying. And why would we want to try? Because we have the most important thing in the world. We have the words of eternal life. We have the good news that is the power of God for salvation. How can that not then be the thing that we are about and known for? Right, so God's will and our work is witness. But we still somewhat dread that. So let's draw it out a little bit more. Point number three, our work of witness is life-giving to others, of course, but here's what we often miss, also to ourselves. Back to the metaphor. Look at verse 34 again. Food. We've seen that food is that which satisfies and sustains. Right? That which satisfies and sustains Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God is to work the will of his Father. Therefore, that which will satisfy and sustain the follower of Jesus Christ, being progressively conformed into the image of his Son, is also to work 
the will of his father. But get this, don't miss this. Good food satisfies and sustains. But that's not all that good food does, right? Good food also pleases and delights. God graciously did not give us a world full only of manna that merely fills the physical needs of a body. No, he gave us a world full of things like chip strawberry shortcake cookies and Ample Hills ooey gooey butter cake ice cream and a pretzel cone and Peking chicken and Peruvian hot sauce and mangoes and beans of all variety and flesh of many animals, chicken and cow and pig and fish and so much more. It's amazing. It's a testimony to the goodness and the kindness of God. Yes, food sustains us, but it's also a delight and it's pleasurable and it's fun. It pleases and delights. And it is meant to be the same thing for doing the will and the work of God. I think we often treat the work of God like it was manna. It's like, okay, it's terrible, but we have to eat it and we got to do it. Okay, whatever. But that's not what God gives us. He doesn't give us bad things. He gives us good things. Back to C.S. Lewis. Praise is an expression of enjoyment. That's worship. Enjoyment naturally looks to draw others into that same joy. That's witness. He continues. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. If it were possible for a created soul fully to love and delight in the worthiest object of all and to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude or just happiness. The Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what we know then is that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. See, worship is the response to recognized value and beauty. And the praise of that value and beauty is part of the enjoyment of it. The delight, the pleasure is incomplete until it is expressed. We glorify God and we enjoy him and the two go together. We get pleasure from praising God. But if we are correct in arguing that witness is worship, then we need to see and begin to believe that the expression of our delight in God is incomplete also until it is expressed to others. What if we actually believed that evangelism could be a pleasure? That it could increase our joy in God as we increasingly see it as part of our worship of God? Which is the very thing that we are created for. To worship Him, to glorify Him, and in so doing to find our soul's greatest delight in Him. To enjoy Him. What if our witness was part of that? These are important questions that we should all be asking ourselves. Do we delight in God? Is there any way in your heart that you you actually can say that like you you enjoy him? Oh, he's so good and I'm so glad in him. Do we at times overflow in praise and adoration? And look, it will look differently for each of us. We are all of us wired differently. So I'm not concerned about a particularly outward form of expression, but I'm concerned that you be examining your heart to see if you truly love and enjoy the Lord. Does he occupy your thoughts? 
Do you think of him and find yourself encouraged and glad because of these truths of him? Do you find comfort and joy from his presence as you read his word and he speaks to you and you speak back to him in prayer? And then does that gladness and that enjoyment ever express itself in a desire to share that love and enjoyment with others? Again, because that's all that witness is. Look at the end of verse 36. Jesus is still talking about sowing and reaping, the sowing and reaping of souls to eternal life. That's the work. He's the ultimate sower. We have the great privilege of reaping the fruit of his work, and fruit is good. It's delicious. It's pleasant. End of verse 36. All of this is happening so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Joy. Jesus is talking about joy. Our witness is doing great and ultimate good for others because it is only through the faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the words of eternal life about the word of life that anyone can live. Our witness, by the grace of God, is literally life-giving to others. We get that. But what we miss is that our witness is also life-giving to ourselves. And consider Jesus' words again. His food is to do the will and work of God. And what ultimately was that? It was to die. Jesus came for the express purpose of giving himself, of pouring himself out, of laying down his life for the good of others. And Jesus calls that food. He calls that his sacrifice and death, that which satisfies and sustains, that which drives and even, dare we say, delights him. And we selfish sinners have such a hard time with this. I'm speaking from experience. Remember, that's what sin is. It's selfishness. It is the inward, selfward turn. It is to be curved in on oneself, focused on oneself, living for oneself. And we think that it is there that we will find life. We think that it is there that we will find rest and pleasure. Treat yourself. Follow your heart. You do you. Self-care. And, and on and on. But the great tragedy and irony of this is that it doesn't work. There didn't used to be many self-help books in a bookstore. Now you go in and it's one of the largest sections of the store because self-help doesn't work. So we have to keep creating and writing and building these books. Why does this not work? It's because of design. It's because of how we are wired and created. Look at Jesus, the only perfect person, God himself. And he says that it is his food not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he is our model here, as hard as it is for us to believe it. We insist on seeking our satisfaction in self. And we demonstrate that with how we use our time. How dare the church expect me to give up more than one of my 168 precious hours a week? How dare a sermon go longer than 30 minutes? Don't, don't they know it's hard for me to focus for that long? Pulls out phone and swipes through social media for three hours, right? It's, right? it's crazy. Sits down and watches Netflix for four hours. How dare a church ask me to give up one of my precious seven nights a week to be with others? Right? I, I need my six to midnight, seven hours a week to focus on me. And I do this. We all do this. And yet so many are miserable. And maybe there's a correlation. We were not designed to find pleasure and satisfaction and life in ourselves by ourselves. We actually find it, as demonstrated here by Jesus, in turning our focus away from ourselves 
toward others. His food was to seek to do spiritual good to others. And if you are a Christian, then that is to be true for you as well. You will actually find satisfaction and sustenance and pleasure not in seeking your own good, but in first seeking the good of another. And in wonder of wonders, you will find your own good in that seeking the good of another. Spurgeon insightfully comments on, on this and challenges us from this passage. I like to just pawn and take off on Spurgeon, so you have to be mad at, at him. If you're mad about the 1689, be mad about Spurgeon. It's his fault. Uh, if you're mad about this quote, he said it, not me. This, this is Spurgeon. Listen to what he says. This is one of his sermons on this text. He says, Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. Now, what does he mean by look after them? He tells us, if you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual invalids. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? But if the Master shall come to you, and put his hand upon you and say, I have sent you just as my father sent me. Now go and do my will. You will find that in keeping his commandment, there is great reward. You will find meat to eat that you know nothing of now. That's so profound. I wish I could believe that. I wish I could live in light of that. I'm still so prone to live in my head and turn in towards myself and think if I can just get this break or this rest or do kind of what I want to do, then I'll be fine. And I find that it's actually the opposite. He says we make ourselves miserable the more that we focus on ourselves and don't seek and serve the Lord. Maybe if you're miserable, maybe if you are sad, this could be a part of it. Again, I know this is the case for me. I am such a selfish sinner. My competing idol is pleasure, comfort, or ease. And I find that when I insist on those things, when I seek satisfaction in self and in the things that I demand that I have to have, I actually end up miserable. I am still very slow to learn this lesson of the life and the joy that there is to be found in doing God's work and will, in finding my good and happiness in him, and then in finding my good and happiness in him by seeking the good and happiness of others, by pointing them to him. We are all of us so full of self when what we need to do is just forget self. This is why Calvin argues that the very sum of the Christian life is the denial of self. And he's right. And there's great joy to be found there because it is only as we are increasingly divested of self that we are increasingly filled and full of Christ. And he is life. And so we need to see the life-giving nature of the work of witness. Listen, remember this. Let's actually try to believe this. Put this on repeat throughout your week, throughout your life. People without Christ go to hell. That's just what scripture says. We either believe that or we don't. People without Christ go to hell. What an opportunity and privilege then we have to witness to them about the Jesus who is life. That witness could literally be life-giving. And if you are in Christ, you will find that it is literally life-giving to your soul 
as well. Because all of that, point number four, and we've already talked about this, so I'll just remind you, all of this is only because Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Look at what happens. Let me just run through it. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, witness. It's life-giving. What a privilege to be part of that. Verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. Last verse, 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you know this? Then speak. Has he saved you? Then love and worship him. And then get to the blessed work of inviting others to come and see the one who is life. There is nothing more important than this. Because as J.C. Ryle says, one single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world. And then be encouraged wonderfully by the example of this woman. Look at the life-giving effect and be encouraged by the simplicity of what it is that she does. Ryle goes on to point out how uh, this simple call to come and see is so much more effective than most of our complicated, technical, apologetic arguments. He says, the fact is most encouraging to all believers who try to do good. All cannot argue, but all believers may say, come and see Christ. If you would only look at him and see him, you would soon believe. Church, you can do that. We can do that. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. See that. Believe that. Delight in that. And then invite others to enjoy the thing you most enjoy. That's all evangelism is. This, he, is really good. Hey, you, come and see this thing, this one, who is really, really good. I have found life and joy in him. I would find great joy in you finding life and joy in him as well. Come and see. That's evangelism. Don't complicate it. Live your life just as we must begin to see that worship is about the whole of your life lived in reference to God before his face. We need to begin to shift our thinking on evangelism as well. We need to see it as part of the natural worshipful response to the glory and grace of God. And then we need to see it less as a program or an event at the church, but an entire lifestyle. Start living your entire life with gospel intentionality. How can I do this person's soul good? How can I love them? How can I wisely and lovingly create opportunities to talk to them about Jesus, the Jesus who is life? The Jesus whom, remember, we claim that we love more than life itself. And so see the natural and logical beauty of the move from loving Jesus to speaking about Jesus and then simply speak. Church, he is also worthy of our worship. And our witness is a life-giving expression of that worship. Because witness is worship. Bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Father, my words have been many. I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that you would show us Jesus Christ and all his glory and goodness. What a wonderful revelation of your love for your children as he seeks and comes after this woman and as he speaks to her and as he loves her and as he reveals himself to her. Father, you are so good to us. Father, forgive us for how cold and apathetic we are 
about your grace and your kindness and your mercy. Father, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for how focused we are on the things of the world and not on you and not on the things that you are focused on. Father, continue to reorient our lives and reorient our worship. Father, consume us with um, a vision of your goodness and of your glory and lead us to live our entire lives in response um, to what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, make us glad in Jesus. Forgive us for how prone we are to complain. Forgive us for how impatient and angry we can be over such small and minor things when we were dead, but now we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, give us perspective. And Father, as we see your glory and as we see the goodness of your Son, Father, make us your witnesses. Now forgive us for how slow we are to speak. Forgive us for fearing man more than we fear you. We pray that you would flip that and change that and that you would move us and motivate us to be your witnesses and we would see the goodness and the pleasure and the joy that is to be found in speaking of the one who is life. Uh, Father, we have such a long way to go. We are so in desperate need of your help, but we are so thankful that you are so clear to us that you, who are the one who begins the good work in us, has promised that you will complete the good work in us. And that gives us such confidence and hope and joy. Um, so Father, we pray simply now uh, that you would show us Christ and help us to love him just a little bit more as a result of this word today. And we ask and we pray this all and only in his name. Amen.